Welcome to the Who I Became podcast. Well, welcome to another episode of the Who I Became podcast, where I interview leaders who share their stories of success, failures that have made them the person they are today. And I'm joined by, I guess I can now say, my good friend, Jimmy Meeks, our Sheepdog Seminars. Uh, hello, Jimmy. How are you doing today? Good afternoon, Simon. Greetings from Texas. Well, and I say my good friend because in the last few weeks or months, I feel like I've harassed you so much that we've now become friends. So We're going to have to get the technology fixed or get uh, Bill Gates or somebody to look at it because... <laughs> Well, with the COVID nineteen, more than I'm seeing my wife these days. I'm well, with the COVID nineteen, everything is on lockdown, and the world is moving to technology. So, you're seeing a lot more of me than what you might have done before. You know, it's forcing yeah. us to hold these video conversations. But really pleased that you can join me today, Jimmy. And I just thrilled to be uh, here. For our listeners that don't necessarily know who Jimmy Meeks is, I just want to go over your your bio a little bit and not hopefully this isn't going to embarrass you. But you know, you served over thirty five years as a police officer. I think you corrected me last time, but I said 47 years as, as a minister. You're a pastor of a church for 11 years. Uh, your organization, Sheepdog Seminars, has presented in over 39 states, um, conducted over 400 safety seminars to around 40,000 churches. I mean, that is a, a phenomenal number. And interestingly, you got married at the First Baptist Church in Dangerfield, Texas. It was the site of the first really deadly force incident at a church where five people were killed um, and, and 10 were injured. And different, as if to throw in a different spice to your life, Jimmy, you're also the production assistant in the award-winning drama Faith Under Fire, which was based on the 1980 tragedy at the First Baptist Church in, in Dangerfield. And obviously your good friends with Colonel Grossman, your latest pro project is Spiritual um, Combat, where you're now going to start traveling around the country, hopefully when COVID lifts up and and provide awareness on, on the spiritual side of uh, working in safety and security. So I guess there's a lot in there, Jimmy. What is there that Jimmy Meeks can't do? Is my, my, my first well, that, question. that resume is very misleading. <laughs> 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 it's kind of like a funeral. You know, when a guy dies, then we say something really nice about him and too bad that he'd say it when he was alive type thing. But, but um, you know, it's just a privilege to be here. And, you know, you can always make yourself look like you've accomplished more when you write it down. But I, I've been around 62 years, so there are people whose whose bio would far go way far beyond mine. You know, you just but you know, don't, you know, don't know life. Yeah, and I don't underestimate your things because I mean, the maybe if we start with sheepdog seminars as to what you do now, because you know you have travelled the country for maybe the last 10 years, and, and like the numbers say, you've been in over um, well. The number I have is 39 states. I'm sure it's more than that now. And you've done over 400 seminars to around 40,000 churches. So don't don't belittle your accomplishment. Maybe tell us well, how much sheepdog seminars had, About 30 to 40,000 churches, give or take a few, have been represented at the seminar. I haven't been to 30,000 churches. No, no. They, they've showed up, to be honest with our viewers, which I, I want to be. But we, we've had tons of – we quit counting years ago and because uh, I never thought it would – you know, still be still be going, and I haven't done one in so quite a while now because of COVID nineteen. So who knows where it will go? I hope the churches are still open to creating you know safe atmospheres and what have you. Well, maybe tell us, Jimmy, how did all this start then? If we take sheepdog seminars, how how did you start traveling the country and educating about safety in worship? Where did it all begin? I guess it was uh, you know, I was a police officer for police officer for thirty five years, and uh, 
I put in for a, a special assignment back around 2006, 2007. I wanted to be a, a crime prevention officer. The opening came up. It was a three-year rotational spot. And I put in for it, and I got it. And I didn't really know what I was getting into, but crime prevention is just a great assignment because you, 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 you really learn you know, all these crimes the police go to, the vast majority of them are very, very preventable. I mean, I used to tell my chief, listen, I can stop crime if you'll just give me the freedom to do some things. There's things you can do, and we just won't have to go to all these same calls all the time. So I had a three-year assignment, and in crime prevention, is a became a crime prevention specialist. I just ate it up. I loved going to work every day. I'd already been a police officer for about 25 years at the time. But it was kind of like starting over. So I got to thinking one day I should do something for the churches. I wonder how much crime occurs in churches. I didn't really know. I didn't know how bad it was at the time or how bad it would become, how frequent it was. You know, I knew about the church where you mentioned that uh, Faith Under Fire in Dangerfield, Texas. That was uh, 40 years ago in June, June, uh, June uh, 22nd. Uh, of 2020 will be 40 years. It occurred June 22nd, 1980. <clears throat> but I, uh, that's about all I knew and a few other things. There was a church in Fort Worth where people, uh, 14 people were shot one night, seven killed. And that's about all I knew. So uh, I put on a uh, program uh, for churches on, I believe it was a Thursday, May 28th, 2009. Had about 180, 185 people packed out this little auditorium and and we just had a wonderful time, and we learned how to, you know, better protect the flock and the sheep and all that good stuff. And uh, I thought it was over with. It's like a six-hour seminar at the end of the day. I just assumed it was over with. And uh, I was back on the street, I think, uh, two days later. And then um, people began to call. So I did church safety seminars. I still do them. still do them all the time, even though we've been on hold because of the virus. But uh, I uh, in 2000. I guess it was around 2012, uh, my department sent me to hear Colonel Grossman one day. And I went to hear him, and I thought, wow, that's pretty interesting. The sheepdog analogy, I had not really heard much about it. So long story short, I got a hold of him and said, hey, would you come to Fort Worth and you know, let's do a uh, seminar for churches? And we did it at Wedgwood Baptist, a church where, as I mentioned early in 1999, a man came in there on a Wednesday night, shot 14 people, killed seven. And uh, I brought Colonel Grossman down. I brought some other people down. We had a two-day seminar, May 6th and 7th, Monday, Tuesday, 2013. And then Colonel Grossman called me a week later and said, hey, you want to, you know, you want to work together? I said, well, sure. And uh, so we uh, began to travel around and going all over the country. We did about, so far, probably about 101, 102, maybe 103 sheepdog seminars, you know, from all over the place. And. And that whole analogy is about, you know, teaching the sheepdog uh, safety person or the security guard, whatever, uh, you know, how to uh, keep the wolf, the bad guy from hurting the flock, at least having the knowledge to know what to do. So we've been doing that. But, the, you know, like I said, the virus kind of put us on hold. So right now we're just uh, we're waiting. We have a new seminar coming out called Own Spiritual Combat, and it's for the whole church. You know, so. uh but we're in a lot of change right now. You know, 2020 has just been, as you well know, just a, it's been a terrible year for the whole country. You know, we've had to deal with this virus and now this situation in Minneapolis. So everything's kind of on hold. So we're really trying to figure out what we're supposed to do, too. Where do we go from here?
Yeah, no, Jimmy, it's interesting when you talk about the stories to how you began, but um, began, sorry, that, um, you know, you didn't know too much about church security. You might sort of say you sort of drifted into it, but when you found yourself hosting this seminar with Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman, uh, you know, who's a, an internationally known author, scholar, um, you know, books on killing, on compact, these different things. And you said that he's he's been ringing you and saying, hey, do you want to go into the business together? I mean, um, you started off by being a humble man, saying your 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 resume is sort of inflated. But how did that make you feel when someone of great stature was coming to you and saying, hey, I want to work with you on on this stuff? Yeah, well, he, um, you know, he's Colonel Grossman speaks two or three hundred times a year. And, um, you know, he's an expert on on certain things, you know, PTSD, former West Point psychology professor. So he really knows his stuff. And I knew my stuff too. And of course you learn, not been a police officer for 25 years. And, and and after a while you just learn, gee, crime is not that hard to stop if you're willing to do some things. So some common sense and a few schools, and I just kind of an idea of what to do. But, you know, I didn't anticipate him calling. I didn't know how it would go. Our first year was 2014. We did four seminars and then, you know, over the next uh, five or six years, you know, about 95, give or take a few. And it's a real honor to work with him. Uh, he's a good man. He loves God. Uh, you know, he's really been subjected to a lot of uh, uh, undeserving criticism lately because I know him. But uh, it's been been a tough year even for him, too, especially with this recent situation in Minneapolis and what have you. But uh, Colonel Grossman is a godly man. He's a good man. He cares about people. A very compassionate person. So, uh, like I so said, we're just kind of trying to figure out where where do we go from here. What do we do now? Yeah, and I know, Jimmy. When we've spoken before, you've told me that you know your upbringing um, had some sort of um, traumatic um, events, and that you know within your grandparents' house there was a lot of abuse and stuff. And I know you you told me a story once about um, there was I think your grandfather sold his your your grandmother, and oh. you went around the house and there was, there was blood on the wall and stuff. I mean, how did that type of just maybe give us some insight? How did that shape you as a, well, I grew up as a in, man? Now, I grew up in southern Arkansas. Grew up down the road from a town called Hope, Arkansas. That might ring a bell with some people. Uh, Hope, Arkansas was the hometown of Bill Clinton. That was about an hour away from me. Of course, we didn't didn't know Bill Clinton as kids, you know, but he became the governor later on. And, you know, and I grew up in a home where there was just a lot of dysfunction and uh, constant bickering and fighting and violence and rebellion. And, and uh, it just seemed to be in my bloodstream, so to speak, from, you know, from grandparents and and uh, other relatives that there was just a lot of, there was a strong tendency toward violence. And, and I can remember my grandfather, he owned a beer joint. I remember going over there one night to check on, uh, on grandma because dad had heard that he had hit her and we couldn't find her. But I, I've never been able to shake that image of that, that blood on the wall, you know, that he had hurt her. And that has just kind of, you know, stayed with me a long time. And, and I think, you know, you see things like that and you either become a bitter person and you become like that. Or maybe later on, you there was a couple of police officers in my family, two uncles, but I never was really interested in it. I just kind of fell into it one day because I thought it would be a cool way to make a living while you're in college. But I'm sure our uh, childhood experiences and stuff, I mean, they do contribute to what we become. You know, you like I said, you either become a bitter person, you hate the way you were raised or you, gee, I kind of like to make a difference here, you know, get involved in something. And I became a Christian when I was 15 years old. I just really got on fire for God. 
I never intended. I had no spiritual aspiration or dreams when I was a kid. But in the ninth grade, this kind of fell in love with this girl, and she was a Jesus freak, and she had me in church every time the doors were open. And then I just uh, surrendered my life to Christ when I was about 15, and I immediately wanted to be a preacher. And I think I preached within a year or two and then went off to college and got a degree, a Bachelor of Arts in Religion, and you know, got in the ministry, been in the ministry since 1973. And, and uh, you know, so that's just kind of where all that took me. But police work was, I stayed in it 35 years that I never intended to stay in it that long. I thought it'd just be a cool way to get a paycheck without having to work, to be honest, because <laughs> it was so much fun. Yeah, and I know you told me a very, again, another tragic story, but I think it was your um, ninth wedding anniversary Wow. There was a call on the on the radio, and you know there's a lot of things that shape who we are as people, and there's a lot of stories that people tell, and I've heard you tell this story a couple of times, and I still get um, goosebumps. So maybe tell that story and just talk about how it sort of shaped. Well, I, I remember police career. Simon, it was a Saturday afternoon, August twenty third, nineteen eighty six. The reason I'm able to remember the date, it's not so much because of what happened, but because it was my wedding anniversary. We got married August 23rd, 1977. Well, August 23rd on a Saturday, 1986, you know, I'm working the day shift. It was 10 minutes till two o'clock and I only had one more hour to go to work, uh, of work left. And I was in my police car and I was driving it up to the gas station, you know, to refuel, refuel at the city, you know, gas pumps. And um, I still remember the dispatcher calling me, telling me possible dead child in a dumpster behind a furniture store of all things. It just didn't make sense. You know, I whipped a U-turn and I was only about eight or nine blocks from there. And uh, I rushed over there and sure enough, there was a little three-year-old girl. Somebody had murdered. The babysitter had murdered in another town and then drove her over to my city and tossed her body in the dumpster. And that just really stay. Obviously, here it is, you know, whatever it is, 30-something years later, and I still remember that. I remember going to the funeral of that little girl. I didn't want to remember her in that dumpster. And just a beautiful little girl, two, three, four years old. And that babysitter we found out had killed a child before in another state. And that was heartbreaking. Again, so many things are, and these people just do what they do over and over. But, you know, you you see things like that. And that and Simon, that's a lot of what's going on with the police today. You you just see this constant negative stuff and it takes a toll on you. There's no excuse for your bad behavior if it gets the best of you, but that's part of what's going on. Those things tend to make you, you know, desensitize you. You're not as, you become kind of callous. You get used to it and uh, it takes a toll on you. I was a, a Christian and a minister throughout my police career. So thank God for his grace that, you know, that kept me from going off the deep end. I've been married to the same wife, same woman, all my life. We got married at 19 and we went through the whole police career together. It wasn't always easy, but here we are still married today. You know, uh, whatever it's been 43 years later. Well, and that's an accomplishment in itself, Jim. We should have that too. Oh, yeah, that that's, 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 a, that's a long, long list. And I guess, you know, one of the, the, the challenges you have working in law enforcement, and you know, I worked in law enforcement in England, is I, I tended to not tell people of either the trauma that I was suffering or, or the, the things that I was seeing because, you know, as a police officer, you see how broken the world is and it's mm -hmm. challenged. But, you know, when you're finding a 
two or three year old, however this young child was, you know, murdered and discarded in a dumpster. I mean, you've got your faith, but you know, how, how do you process some of that stuff, Jimmy? I mean, what years uh, later, yeah. it's obviously still plays in your mind, but how do you process that? You know, we didn't back in the eighties, we didn't talk a lot about how do you process that? Um, and we're still not good at this police departments, the leadership, in many cases, the leadership is just not doing a good job of, you know, of making the officers talk because you do need to talk. Uh, that was by no means the first or the last time that I would see something like that. I remember in my rookie year before I went to the academy, while I was with my field training officer, I remember responding to a murder call, December of 1980, a 69-year-old prostitute stabbing a 40-something-year-old man in the heart because he didn't pay for his services. And I still remember that. I remember their names, Emma and Fred. Emma, the prostitute, of course, and then Fred, the, the victim. But I remember, you know, 30 years later, as a police officer responding to a call one day where a, a little girl, a beautiful little girl in a white dress, the father had been beating on her for quite some time, and finally some of her organs just gave out, and she died right there in the bedroom. Uh, that was in 2000, uh, 2013. And I believe that man is still in prison. I hope he is. And, and I remembered after that one, I did have some troubles. And I finally asked the chief, I said, hey, let me let me go talk to somebody. Maybe maybe that's why I'm acting kind of strange these days. You know, the mind is such, and the Bible says the heart of man is like deep waters. I believe I'm right on that. I read scripture a lot. Pretty sure it's there. You never really know what's going on in your mind. And that's why it's so important to talk. And I encourage police officers, even though there's this, macho image you want to project and you want to act like you don't need anybody act like you got it together there's really nobody like that uh you know we're sinners we've all been messed up since the garden of eden nobody is made in such a way that they can totally deal with everything terrible that happens in their life and we weren't meant we weren't designed to keep all of this in and you may not go talk to somebody but if you see something that's terrible or if you see a lot of things terrible like our veterans uh, it finds a way of coming out of your life. Sometimes it just comes out a different way. You may end up in divorce. I mean, the divorce rate amongst police officers is well over 50%. I've read stories of 85%, but either way, probably half the cops that, you know, get into the job married end up unmarried not too long after that. But it's so important. And part of what helped me too, Simon, is I've never been somebody to keep everything in. I'm going to talk to somebody. I'm going to come home. I'm my, my wife always, 100% of the time. I have no memory of my wife ever not uh, listening to me. And now she's a police chaplain. She's the senior police chaplain at the department uh, from which I retired. So she always listened to me. And uh, I share my heart with her or share it with somebody at church. So if you bottle things up, you know, they might explode. I was good about popping that top and pour them out. And what about your faith? You got you to get rid of stuff that's in your heart. Yeah, no, I mean, that is absolutely true. I mean, you, you've really got to, we're seeing this with PTSD and some of these things that you, you've got to push it out. And particularly with I stereotype because I'm a man, but I think, you know, us as men as well, we do tend to hold things in because as you said, we don't want to be seen as, as weak or yeah. you know, I can't handle this situation. And then there's peer pressure surrounding, you know, what's what's going on. Mm -hmm. but, uh, an interesting thing that you, you started to go towards, and I want to, uh, 
touch on this for a second is your faith aspect. So when you're seeing some of these horrific um, acts that man creates, you know, the murder of a child, and obviously I'm assuming it was a female ba- female babysitter, I don't know if it was, but, mm. you know, to take someone's life, when you're seeing these things, as a minister and a longstanding police officer, were you ever challenged in your faith as to, well, why is God allowing this to happen? I mean, no. what answers did you have there? That was a quick well, one, Jimmy, I like it. You know, I just, well, I just, uh, you know, I, I, uh, I mean, I had my issues, I had my problems, but I understood that the world is a bad place. Uh, and I know there are people who say, oh, no, it's not. Well, that's because they live in Never Never Land or a dream world. They haven't, you know, uh, eventually you're going to go through some bad things, especially as you get older. A lot of my friends, you know, 15% of my high school graduating classes died. That thought never dawned on me when I graduated high school that we're going to die. Now, fifteen yeah, percent sure. of those guys are, uh, you know. And when I show up at my high school reunion, they say I look dead. I'm not sure what they mean by that, but anyway, you just you know things start to kick in. But I didn't doubt God, and you know, I, I I've said why a lot. I mean, Jesus said, "Why have you forsaken me?" When he was on the cross, Jeremiah the prophet questioned God, Job questioned God. A lot of the prophets had a hard time with the way things operate, because even though we live in a fallen world, that's not a sufficient answer. I mean, God can intervene. But one of the things that helped me was just understanding that this is where we are in history. We're not in heaven yet. We're not in the Garden of Eden. And we're outside the garden. And this is a bad place. And you need, this is just where we are. If you don't like that about, and there's no option to that, Simon. You can't say, I don't like it. So I'm not going to do it. Well, yeah, you are going to live in this world and deal with its heartache and sorrow and disappointment. And, and you just have to come to, you know, come to terms with that. What do you want to do about that? In my heart, you know, being a believer and, and the real secret with me, with all of that, with, you know, the trauma and the terrible scenes and the blood and the guts and the gory was that uh, I don't know any way to put it other than to say that Jesus was very real to me. And it was like he was absorbing some of the blows of life. Does that make sense? Yeah. He, he was kind of like a kind of like a force field to me. Or and I hate to use terms like this. He was kind of like my vest. And the Bible says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put him on, Romans chapter 13. Put on Jesus. And it was like he, you know, the blow could have been a 10, but it was a seven because he absorbed it. And the Bible says, cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. Cast your burden upon him, King David said in Psalms. So I, Psalm 55, I believe that is verse 12 or 22, something like that. That relationship that I had with God, I don't even say my faith sustained me. It was, it was my father. You know, I just had a sense of his presence. He was with me. And, and I also saw that those things break his heart. Of course, I know people would say, well, why doesn't he act? Why doesn't he do something? Well, he did. He, he made you and your, your responsibility. And there's a lot of broken things in the world that would not be broken if we stepped up to the plate and fixed them. Yeah, there's a Christian a song about that. There's just a lot of things you can fix. Yeah, there's a Christian song, Jim. I can't remember um, who well, sings it. Matthew West. That's right. Yeah, do so. And it's sort of, you know, being challenged. Well, it's just to of favorite songs. Yeah, what? Why is um, God not into sort of, um, sort of getting involved? Why is God not stopping this mm-hmm. from happening? Where it's because well, it's, you know he. Yeah, it's it's up to you. Exactly. We're we're, we're here. Well, yeah, well, I understood too, Simon. You know, the Bible says, 
The heavens belong to the Lord. The earth he has given to the sons of men. This is our world. This is our world. And the original plan was that we would work in harmony with God. You know, and of course, we, we were doing that in the garden. But outside the garden, because of Christ and what he has done in the presence of the Holy Spirit in our heart, we can, and the Bible says we are one spirit with him, 1 Corinthians 6. We can work in harmony with God. And I believe, I've experienced he could help us understand why these things going on. And better yet, what are some things we could do? I think one of the crying needs of the hour, and it's been this way for years, people running around upset at the world, upset at education, upset at the environment. Well, do something. If you're that upset about the environment, quit drinking out of plastic cups, you know, because that does affect the environment or you know, and what have you. If you're upset about human trafficking, contribute to a ministry that's fighting human trafficking. Get involved. I love the word involved. We're just we're not as involved as we need to be. We're just kind of sitting back and watching. Yeah, and I know one of the things we're talking about getting involved. You know, in, in recent years, there's been a lot of tragedy around deadly force at House of Worship. I know that's where you, Lieutenant um, Colonel Dave Grossman, and Cold Chin um, focus on, and that, that used to be a strong focus within your your seminars. And you know, we had Dylan Roof, the Charleston uh, mass murderer. We had Sutherland Springs, uh, and I always, when I see these news reports, um, I always see Jimmy Meeks go into these these sites, and I know. We're oh, yeah. fascinated as people. We're, we're fascinated by murder and by true crime. Um, you know, and as, as a former police officer, you go to a dinner party and someone always wants to say, well, what's the worst thing you've seen or tell me the story? But it, it intrigued me about you because I keep seeing you crop up at all these different mass murder sites. I'm thinking, yeah, I wonder too, what, Jimmy, why do you do that? Why don't you go on a normal vacation? Like, Yeah, what, what is what? Why, why do you go, Jimmy? You know, why do you go to these mass murder sites? I, uh, yeah, well, of course, I don't go to all of them. I mean, I... You know, three or four hours from here, there was an African-American lady preacher who 11 years ago this year was brutally murdered inside her church. Uh, I won't even give the details because you would have to edit it out. And uh, I just went there. They they tore the church down. There's a memorial there. And I went there a couple of times and just stared at it. And it's it's not morbid curiosity as much as it is. I sense this calling on my life and I, I, I want to hurt with people. I don't want to become somebody who's kind of, oh, yeah, well, stuff happens. You know, let's go get on our motorcycle and take a ride through the country. And I'm for that, too. I wish I could do that more. But, uh, you know, other places, I just, uh, like Sutherland Springs, after those 26 worshipers were killed, 20 more shot, I was down there within 48 hours. I wanted to be there for them if they needed me. And I became good friends with the pastor, Frank Pomeroy and his wife, Sherry. They're incredible people. I guess I just, you know, Simon, we get we get a few years, 50, 60, 70, 80. You only get a few years and you're gone. Why not fix what you can, you know, and then when you're gone, you're going to have the ult, if you believe this and if it's true and I believe it and I believe it to be true, when we all get to heaven, as the old hymn says, it will be eternal vacation unlike anything we've imagined. So why not, you know, Colonel Grossman says, it's not always up to us to make the ultimate sacrifice, but you can live a life of sacrifice. And he's on the road two or 300 days a year trying to help sheepdogs and cops and what have you, soldiers. You know, he just believes let's, let's give up some things now that we really like for the sake of some people to help. And sometimes I like to go to those scenes and, 
you know, I stare at them, I look at them. It's probably no different than people who visit Civil War, you know, sites or Vietnam Memorial or whatever. You know, I um, and I like to meet people there. You know, I've had a lot of experiences when I've gone to these different places and I want to help. I want to I want to feel I want to feel God's heart. I want to you know, you want to bear that burden. I want to what can we do to to stop this? Unfortunately, it usually has to it takes a tragedy to wake people up. Yeah, nobody does. Nobody gets concerned about the church until 26 are gunned down or 14 are gunned down and half of them killed. And, and that's unfortunate. But that's just something that I, I'm not sure what my motive all the time is as much as it is. I just want to, I want to see where did this happen? Now I, I won't jump in a car and drive to the other end of the country, but if I'm anywhere near it, I'll, I'll go. <laughs> yeah. And but, I know that when we spoke a little while ago, you know, I mean, like I said, you know, you've had 35 years as a police officer, 47 years as a minister, you spent the last eight and nine years on the road with sheepdog seminars, educating about safety. And you said, you know, Simon, I'm, I'm tired. You know, I'm, I'm getting tired. I don't know how long I can keep doing this. But Jimmy Meeks does keep doing it. You know, you keep doing these seminars. No, 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 But you say, but, but there is always an idea. But I guess my question is, why can't you stop? I mean, I know you say you want to slow down, but I'm not seeing any evidence of that, that Jimmy. So so what is it inside you? Why can't you slow down? You know, I, I think as a police officer, I saw so much wrong with the police, with the way the departments were run. I still see that. And I saw that, gee, we're not stopping anything. We're just responding. I mean, that's what the police are going to do. Take the example of church-related violence, Simon. 91% of the time, nine, one, that's nine times out of 10, a killer comes to church and completes his mission before he stopped. The police have only stopped about 10% of the violence in houses of worship. And you hardly ever read of a police officer at the scene of a crime. We hardly ever, I only stopped a handful of crimes in 35 years. And that was very frustrating because I wasn't allowed to be proactive. And that was very frustrating. Most police departments that I'm familiar with, they're not very proactive. Right now, we're seeing the community wants the police out in the neighborhoods. They want to talk. They want to engage the officer. They want to know who's assigned to their beat where they live. I did. I loved it. I, when I retired, my chief said to everybody, well, gee, now that Jimmy's leaving, who's going to get out of the car and talk to the public? <laughs> you know, and they laughed, they know it was not uncommon for me to make 20 or 30 contacts in a shift, get on my bicycle. I was a bicycle cop too. And yeah, and it would be 105 degrees out there and I'd have all that gear on ride all over that town visiting people. And I'd have to say the reason I did that, that was just the effect of Jesus on me. Jesus loved to get out amongst the people. And that, when I, you know, C.S. Lewis calls it the good infection. When I came to Christ, I caught what he had. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so we don't read him doing a lot of vacations and tours. He, he is into people. And that's the effect it had on me. I'm not even sure that's what you were asking me. Well, no, what, what I feel, what, I, what I'm hearing from you. We just couldn't do anything as police officers. We respond. And now I had the freedom. Let me go show these people what to do so they won't be a victim. Yeah, and I guess what I'm feeling from you, Jimmy, is that you can't stop because there is no end. I can't. Yeah. I think I read it this morning. He said, I, I have to do the works of him who sent me. 
while it's still the day. I did read this this morning. I must do the works of him who sent me while it is still day for the night comes when no man works. Yeah. So that's a good question. I just read that in the Bible a few hours ago. Well, and you said something to me a few weeks ago, and I'm going to keep this one uh, because it's a a really interesting one when it comes to about our own personal safety and taking accountability. And I only mentioned this story because you sort of brought it back to your police career, but you said, Simon, when seconds count, the police are only minutes away. When seconds count, the police are only minutes away. And I think that is true that we do have to take personal responsibility because I hope and pray that a police officer is going to be there to help me, but that is right. When seconds count, they won't be Probably one police officer, maybe one police officer per 10,000 people. We have 800,000 cops in the city or in the country and uh, less than 200,000 are on duty at any time. 17,000 police departments. I mean, there are cities that if they knew how poor and inadequate the police coverage was, they would all this talk about disbanding police. They're not going to do that. If anything, they're going to increase and make it better because and they're going to train the police better. You and I have been talking about this too. Uh, we're being asked to do more than ever before. You're not just a crime fighter. Most of the time you're not. You're just a public servant. And I have taken squirrels out of commodes, you know, rats out of rat traps, people call the police for. I mean, I don't know what else there is. And it is true because the police are when there is, if there's a ticky box where it doesn't fit in, the police are the people to get called. You know, the they're the one. in the tree and they are one stop away before the first police department, I think was created in 1850 in Boston. What in the world did they do when they had a mouse caught in a trap? I wonder if they got rid of it themselves or did they, (laughs) I'm I'm saying that in jest, but you know, there's the police are being asked to do more than ever before. Counselor, social worker, judge, jury, executioner. And it's overwhelming. A lot of them, the training has not kept up. The training has not kept up to par. Well, and society's training. I can remember my days in England, I got called to a hospital where a person was refusing to leave and I asked him why he was refusing to leave. And he said, well, my social worker can't take me home. And I said, well, where do you live? And it was around three miles ago, three miles away. And I said, well, why can't you, why can't you walk home? He said, well, my social worker should take me home. You know, so I don't want to get off on a tangent here, but, but society is just a good example. Society has really changed so much. You oh, mean, it is. Going our police yeah, we, and that's so. a whole other show. It's, there's been a big change. And people, they, they, you know, a lot of them are mad at the police right now with everything going on. But at the same time, they have such high, those same people that are mad, if they're in trouble, they're going to call 911. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And we don't know that. A, you know, it's a catch-22. The cops are between a rock and a hard place. You know, but I, I, you know, in answer to your question directly, I just, you know, what's, whatever's inside you, that's what's going to come out and whatever burns in your heart, you know, that's what's, that's what you, you want to do. I would rather, let's go fix something. Let's go do this seminar. Let's give these people a tip uh, than I would, you know, to always do something that might seem like more fun. And that is fun to me. I, I enjoy and I've done seminars for women. 5,000 women probably have attended my seminars, a women's safety seminar we have. Uh, I love doing them. I love having two, three, four, five hundred 500 women sitting out there and say, ladies, let me teach you how not to get raped and killed. I mean, can there be anything more fun than showing somebody, uh, one of our precious ladies who live on this earth, how to stay alive? I mean, what, what compares to that? Yeah, and Jimmy, I mean, you've talked within your career, police career, and even you know, sheepdog seminars. I mean, you know, if 
the number is around forty to 50,000. I know you're very humbled by that, but there are different churches and people that you've potentially touched. You know, you've saved a lot of lives. You, you've um, supported so many different people. What, what, is your, what is your legacy? What do you want your legacy to, to, oh. to be as you start to wind down your career? Albeit you say you're not winding down. What do you want that legacy to be? Um, and maybe it's just because I'm 62. And maybe it's because maybe some other show you can let me tell this story because it'll blow your mind. But and I won't tell it now, but I've come to a place where I want to learn how to be a really how to. I mean, the, the second commandment is love your neighbor. I mean, Jesus basically gave us two things to do. Love God, love your neighbor. If you're not good at loving people then you have failed life. I don't care. You may drive a Mercedes, live in a mansion, own a boat, a jet, and a chauffeur picks you up every morning and takes you to work. But if you are not a good lover, you have flunked life. So if I have a choice, I know without a doubt, with no hesitation, I sure would like to be remembered as, wow, Jimmy sure did love his wife. You know, he loved his son, his daughters, his son-in-laws, daughter-in-law, grandchildren. That's what I want to be remembered. And this COVID crisis has had me locked in for three months, you know, and it's forced me to think about these things because people remember they were there. What they remember is their experience of you. And Simon will be remembered by his family is the way he related to them. And my family will remember me and my friends, you know, their memories of me. That's what forms my legacy. And I really would like to be known that, you know, it took him a while to get there, but he fought, crawled and clawed or whatever the word is, and he didn't give up. You know, he saw counseling or he talked to people. He did whatever he had to do to become the best lover he could become because that's what weighs heavy with God, not how much money do you have, but how much love do you show. And that's what I'd like to do. If you just accomplish a lot of things that people know about, and then you go to that man's house and say, oh, what was he like? Well, he built a college and did this and that, but you know something, he didn't have time for us. He didn't talk to us. He, he was impatient and angry and mad. And unfortunately that's some of the things my kids would say. And, and I'm correcting that. I'm fixing that. I want to relate. I want to be a better listener, better person. I don't mean to sound religious or nothing. I just, maybe I've hit that age where, you know, Jesus said, if you, or Paul said, you, you can accomplish a lot, but if you don't love, you're nothing. And there's a lot of people that come to their life and they're just nothing. You know, that verse in first Corinthians 13, uh, I want to be something and you become something by being a good lover. So that's the leg. And that, and that can spill Simon into everything. The sheepdog seminars, church safety seminars, women's seminars. You know, I'm working on a, another movie project. I have a mo- meeting with a movie company next so month. You can't stop Jimmy. Well, man. There's a, there's a movie about, a, about a police officer in, it's been a dream for a long time, but that's, that's going to come from love because I know, I know what's wrong with the police. I know what's going on. Uh, I just know, I don't mean to be arrogant. I was just in that world 35 years. I know what the prognosis or whatever the right word is. I never, I always get it backwards with the word diagnosis. I know what the doctor would say if all these cops went to a doctor one day, I, uh, you know, and I want to help. I want to do that. And you want to leave a legacy, you know, you don't want to just, he was a sweet husband at the same time, and he fought for the world. He fought. You know, it, you've heard of Chris Kyle, I'm sure, Simon. Yes. Uh, I know his wife, Taya Kyle, and 
she's supposed to do some seminars with me this year. And I'm really excited about it. But I remember, you know, her husband was on four or five tours in Afghanistan. He comes home, he gets killed by a fellow soldier that he's trying to help. It crushed us all. And I can't even imagine what it did to Taya and her two children. But I remember what she said at his funeral, which was about 15 minutes that way over here at Cowboy Stadium. And uh, I remember her saying, my husband was not only a warrior on the battlefield, he was a warrior at home. And, and that would have to be the ultimate compliment. I'd hate to be somebody who was remembered for just being sweet, kind, or nice. That's not me. I would, I want my wife and kids to say, man, he just, he fought. If, when he saw he wasn't loving, he fought to become a lover. And he was, he was fighting, fighting, and he realized his greatest enemy was himself. And he well, fought and, himself and prevailed. And Jimmy, it's a great segue because one of the things that some people might know is that where is on, I believe they're on YouTube, but definitely on your um your Facebook pages, we'll talk to those um, in a few moments, where you have Sheepdog Church, where people can hear you. Um, yeah, I had not know I need to start doing them some more because I wasn't getting any response from people. I didn't know if anybody was watching it. Oh, yeah, I've looked at the numbers. They're, they're, they're good numbers, Jimmy. But my, my point oh. is that within there, yeah, I, I watch them and I look, there. there's some good viewing figures out there. But you say in there, so people should go to Sheepdog Church and see you uh, minister and deliver a sermon. But there's a line that you say, and I had to write some of the things down, talking about being a lover, where you say, our Heavenly Father is a ferocious, flaming, oh, yeah. fierce, passionate, <laughs> oh, hot, wild, steaming, romantic lover. I mean, I've got to, I had to write it down and deliver the line. But it it was, is, isn't, in all honesty, Simon, I'll be the interviewer for a moment. That's hard to accept, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, it is. And but the first time I heard it, it I was like, wow. It's too good to be true. It is. <laughs> you know, the, and I always say at every seminar, God is a ferocious, flaming, fiery, fierce, passionate, hot, wild, steaming, romantic, adventurous lover. And, and everybody's, there's it, always complete silence. Nobody knows what to do with that because most of them in the room have been infected by religion. They've, they've been drugged up on religion for so long that they haven't really stepped back and taking a good view of this God, but what kind of lover must you be if you wanted me so bad in your family, but you could not let me in because of my crimes and trespasses and sins. So you send your own son to pay for my sin, my sins. He takes them on himself at the cross. You know, the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah, the prophet prophesied long before the cross for God so loved the world. So what kind of lover must you be that you would pay that kind of price to bring me and your family, that you would sacrifice your son? And I had a hard time with stuff like that in the first years of my Christian life because, you know, I grew up, I was a Baptist and still am, but we just, uh, we, we believed in grace. We just didn't walk that way. Or that was my experience. I always thought God was upset at me, displeased, mad, tired of me. And uh, nobody was telling me any different. You know, and finally, you know, years later in the late 90s, early, or excuse me, early 90s, uh, or no, actually the late 80s, I had an experience and he began to peel away all those false beliefs. And uh, and I began to see that what, what a ferocious lover God is. God is love. You know, and I heard people say, I bet you've heard it. It's a miracle that he loves us. Do you agree with that? Amen. Well, it's not a miracle. It would be a miracle if he did not love you because God is love. He would have to act contrary to his nature to not love you. So he has no problem loving me 
or Simon, he, he's that's the way he is. We, we think of love in terms of human love. You know, it's hard to love some people. There's a lot of people who don't love Donald Trump. <laughs> there's a lot of people. There's who, no kinds of politics today, Jim. If I, if I can there's be a lot of session. people who don't love Bernie Sanders or Joe Biden. There's a lot of people who do. But that's human relationship. God says, I can love Bernie. I can love Trump. It's no challenge to me because that's who he is. God is this love, loving person. He loves the police. His heart is absolutely broken over what we are going through in this nation. And the police, uh, thousands of them who were just so heartbroken over what happened in Minneapolis and what they saw, you know, a man being put to death like you, like putting down an animal. It was just horrible. And, and the police, everyone I know, is so upset about this. And God's heart breaks for the police, for the George Floyds of the world, for everybody. You know, he's, he's inviting us. And, and the call to the, those of us who, you know, who, uh, who want to become something, as your show says, who I become, he's saying, come on, listen to my call. Let me put you to work. There's a work with your name on it. There's a lot of things that are broke that wouldn't be broke if you'd go do your assignment. <laughs> yeah, and I think, Jimena, when I look at the earlier question as to why can't you start stop, it's because your heart, your passion says that the mission is not completed. You will just keep going and educating oh, yeah. and, and being a leader. And I know through Sheepdog Seminars, you know, you lead a, 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 an array of internationally known um, people. So thank you for everything that you, you do, Jimmy, and being involved with the organization today. So how can people get hold of you, Jimmy, if they want to learn more? Well, let me also apologize. I haven't had a haircut in three months. Those are not wings. I uh, apologize to your viewers. Think, man, he's a weird looking guy. My wife keeps calling me Einstein, but only because my hair sticks up, not because of my smarts. So my apologies for no haircut. I, I don't want to get out yet. But uh, we have a, a, a website, Sheepdog Seminar, sheepdogseminars.com, I believe it is, or the Facebook page. And there's a phone number on there they can call. Uh, Sheepdog Seminars is the Facebook page. Have a new website out called ownspiritualcombat.com. Ownspiritualcombat.com. We can come to their church. That seminars for the whole church. But there's a phone number on there. They can call me, and people are already starting to call. I believe we have a seminar here in the Fort Worth area, July 25th. Carl Chin's coming to town, and others, and uh, we'd love to hear from them. We'd love to, love to come to their area. Well, Jimmy, thank you for sharing a bit about your life today and giving us some, some insight as to those things that have shaped you and um, take care and talk to you soon. All right, brother. Have a good day. Thank you for joining us for the Who I Became podcast. If you are enjoying the discussions between Simon and his guests, make sure to subscribe, rate and review, as well as share with your friends on social media. Once again, thank you for joining the Who I Became podcast.